We'll begin in Colossians chapter 3 and then come back to 1 Corinthians 13. The, uh, so far in the series here in a more excellent way, which we're doing in 1 Corinthians 13, so far we've done a message, the first one, was called The Need of a More Excellent Way. All these are available on YouTube. They're available on the podcast. Then we dealt with the empty gifts and uh, what that is. And you can go at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13. What happens if we have these gifts and don't have charity? Then we dealt with the verb of charity. And then we dealt with this phrase, is not puffed up. Week after that brought us to the appropriateness of charity. And that's the little phrase, doth not behave itself unseemly. And then last week we dealt with charity's influence on passion and prejudice. And uh, dealt with these things. I encourage you, if you've missed part of these or through the series, I encourage you to please uh, get where you can hear those or, or watch those or however you want to do it. And let it be a help to you tonight. Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to start in just a minute. We're going to have prayer again before we do. It sounds like you had a, a very touchy situation going on when you left, Miss Phyllis. Is, is that correct with you? So the, uh, um, I don't know for sure what all is going on, but let's, let's pray again. Let's pray for him now. Father, that you would give uh, skill to the people attending to him. That you would give his body recovery. And protect him, please. I would just ask you for the things that our words can't form. Amen. We to take every advantage or every opportunity. To uh, grow and let the Lord grow us. Uh, it's uh, I, know, I know why Phyllis came, and I hope that will not seem odd to anybody. But this is a refuge, and sanctuary here, and uh, place to be. But I, I really, I'm just telling you, the things we learn from the Word of God. I, I've learned something over the years. Um, it is not in any way insensitive or un, unaware of what's going on in our congregation at any given time. But we, we need the Word of God at all times. And it's vital. We need to make sure the house of God is something that stays steady, that's theirs a strength, and that you're fed. Because we do not know day by day what we'll face and what we'll need the Lord's strength in. I hope the events of this day, and I hope the what's going on among our congregation, among different ones with the uh, illnesses and the heart situation and such, will cause us to be very sober and uh, not morose, but sober, and th- take each day for the precious thing it is. And uh, may, it, may it cause our families to hug one another's necks, learn to say "I love you," and not leave each other's presence without it, and realize the value that we have all the time 
and uh, so it's important, important stuff. If you allow me tonight, by the will of God and by His Word, I'll, I'll guide you into something that will help you, and I'll strengthen you through the Word of God tonight. Are you there in Colossians chapter 3 as I am? Let's look at the first three verses. Would you follow those please in your Bible as I read them aloud with you? It says, If ye then be risen with Christ, thank God for that, seek those things which are above, where Christ setteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, tonight I want to speak to you on the, this subject along the series of a more excellent way, the subject of the affection of charity. In Colossians chapter 3, we learn we're, we are supposed to set our affection on things above, not on things of the earth. And I'll talk to you about this thing of the affection of charity. Just sit right there if you will, Micah. He's down, buddy. Okay, okay. Indian getting ready to take off on me over there. Um, let's look back at 1 Corinthians 13. In describing charity, you remember I've taught you through the Word of God here that charity is not clinically defined by God, but rather He explains charity by what charity does and what, what charity does not do. In fact, He gives that actually in inverse order of what I said it. Um, there uh, as far as first charity does not do this and then charity does this. And verse 6 is uh, a, a verse there that tells us about what charity has affection for. The Bible says there in verse 6, charity it's talking about here, rejoiceth not in what church? Iniquity. Iniquity all right? It's alright for you to speak out. Rejoiceth not in what? Iniquity. Good. But rejoiceth in what? Truth. The affection of charity. When charity is working in our life, if charity is working in our life as a child of God, then we will have affection that charity can. I figured out what the noise was. Hold on. You too? I don't do this every day. I filled that up today. It's dripping behind me. I can hear it. There you go. That looks weird if you're watching it on YouTube, I guarantee you. Um, but the, uh, as the preacher baptizes himself, they, but charity uh, draws us to have certain affections. Do you know that uh, you, can, you can train your taste to like certain things or dislike certain things? Now, I did say you can train your taste to like everything or dislike everything. I mean, there are probably some tastes to each of you that you are not going to like, no matter how much you try to, you try to uh, get used to it. Uh, talking with somebody and they were trying particular food and they said, I've tried it eight or nine times hoping I'd like it better and I, I, I like it less every time I taste it. Well, they're probably not going to train themselves to like that. you know. But you can, you can get used to some things. Do you know we do the same thing with our affections? Our affections get set on certain things and then they change. And God says, I want you to yield yourself to me and your affections, which by the way is indication of your heart, as in love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, he said, I want you to set them on certain things. Charity, God's love working in us towards others, and God's love working through our life, charity causes us to have affections that God would love us and wants us to have. Um, there are some things, to put down just a couple basic statements to start with, there is something that does not cause charity 
to rejoice. Charity has no affection for it at all. Then, according to this verse, there is something that causes charity to rejoice. Charity has affection for this. The first thing we saw, what charity does not rejoice in, what it has no affection for, is iniquity. And we're going to look at that first because that's the order in which the Bible gives it here. But let's look at this thing. Charity does not have affection. It does not have a, a, a desire towards iniquity. Give you a definition, let you understand what, what iniquity is. Look in Psalm 32. I would keep something there in 1 Corinthians as we'll be coming back. But look in Psalm 32. And I profess to you tonight that this psalm is, the, uh, is, is what opened my eyes to a teaching about uh, iniquity and sin and, and that and what those two things are because they're not interchangeable one for the other. Psalm 32. I keep jumping past it. There it is. Almost 45. Psalm 32. And I want you to look in verse 5 in particular, it says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, look at the phrase, and thou forgavest the, what? Of my, what? Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Think about this. Pause. Think about it. This thing, uh, this verse here establishes the fact of, that there is the iniquity of our sin. I'll put this statement down. Iniquity is the condition of the heart and mind that both causes and is created or amplified by the act of sin, which is transgression. You have an act, breaking of God's law. Someone lies. When they tell that lie, they have sinned. There is iniquity. Iniquity is a heart condition that led them to lie. By the way, although there may be pressures exerted by circumstances, it was not circumstances which caused them to lie. The lie comes from the heart, not circumstance. When you squeeze a grape, guess what you get out of it? Grape juice. Not a trick test. When you squeeze a grapefruit, guess what you get? Usually in the eye. You press apples, guess what you get out of it? Apple juice. When circumstances press our hearts, what it gets out of our hearts is what's in them. And so, the... Iniquity is the condition of the heart and the mind that causes and is created or amplified by the act of sin. Now, the, the very bad thing about it is that iniquity causes sin and the act of sin compounds or amplifies the iniquity. Someone has the iniquity and the iniquity outworks as a lie which is a sin, and then that lie causes hurt and damage and trouble, which is the working of iniquity 
the damage that's caused in addition to, and that person having lied about something may now choose to lie again to cover that lie and to lie again to cover that lie, and pretty soon they can become a lie. Or you really, literally, can't trust what they say. What happened? The iniquity is the process by which not only the sin was initiated, but by which it is perpetuated. And the sin is not only the transgression of God's, God's commandments, but then it also is corruptive to the one who's, who's breaking that commandment. And so we're dealing with iniquity. The Bible says that charity does not have affection for iniquity. I think if we stop and really think through this, and uh, even think about what I'm telling you right now, and you let this sink in, we would quickly conclude that no reasonable being would have affection for iniquity. And yet we hide sin in our heart and have these pet things that we know are wrong that we cling to for whatever gratification and pleasure they can bring on the surface level. Psalm 38, let's look at this. And uh, what Psalm 38 does is Psalm 38 establishes uh, the... Uh, the proper recognition and response to both iniquity and sin. Tremendous verse. And by the way, studying for this uh, message, one advantage when you're doing a series, you can just be studying ahead, studying ahead on where you're going, was I had never seen this in conjunction with Psalm 35. But look in Psalm 38, verse 18. Look what happens with each, each, each part. For I will declare mine iniquity. I will declare mine iniquity. Watch it. Then I, I will be sorry for my sin. By the way, that's not a little flippant. I'm sorry while you continue to do it. You know? um, I will declare my iniquity. I will be sorry for my sin. I've taught you from other passages in the Scripture that there has to come a point where we recognize the iniquity of our sin and not only come to God and say, God, I lied and I shouldn't have lied, but we come to God and get real about this thing. God, I lied because I'm a liar. And recognize the corrupt fountain from which it springs. That's where victories happen. That's where true healing can begin. And what happens is it says, I declare my iniquity. To declare is to speak with certainty. Thank you. I was hoping somebody would get him a cough drop. By the way, why do they call them cough drops when it's supposed to keep you from coughing? Shouldn't they be anti-cough drops? Kid doesn't need a cough drop. He's, he, I tell you what, it's a shame to bark that much and not have something treat, son. It seems like you at least have a coon up the tree. But, uh, the, but it, when we declare our iniquity, the word declare is, is a bold statement. It's a strong statement. This is this. I'm declaring this. We're not declaring it out to our neighbors. We aren't declaring it to some person, religious person that you know exercises authority over us. We're declaring it to God. God, here's my problem. If you read Psalm 51, it is replete with this. He said, here's what I am. Here's why I ended up doing what I did. Because it came from me. And we declare our iniquity. And what this, it's to own up. It's to take responsibility for the true source of sin, which is self. James enforces this strongly in James chapter 1, verse 14. It says, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away, do you know a church, of his what? Own lust. 
And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. What is this? It tells us the origin, where these things start, and where these things come from. It, it's, it's the, it is the working. It is the, it is the uh, iniquity taking, taking hold. It's interesting, and I'm not going to try to tie all this in together. I'm not even sure that I could. But it's interesting. The Bible says the mystery of iniquity doth already work. What is that? The iniquity, the, the sinfulness. People my age who uh, grew up in, in our country here know we're in a vastly different country than we were in when I was young. I mean, even in my teens and my 20s. Uh, it's interesting. Well, my boy said to me the other day, he said, uh, uh, he, he said to his wife, he said, he said, Mom and Dad got to grow up in the last really good generation of our country. Caught me off guard. said, the last really good time to grow up in our country. And I, I said, what are you talking about? And they said, before the internet. Before everything changed. I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, I wouldn't have expected that statement. I wouldn't disagree with it. But uh, we may not, I may not have been the greatest generation, but we were a happy bunch. <laughs> and... Uh, we see things that assault the senses and the sensibility every day that would not have even started to have been tolerated in our society. And nobody would have come to arrest somebody. First of all, everybody wasn't running around trying to make laws to control everybody else all the time. But it just wouldn't have been tolerated. It wouldn't have happened. People had too much respect. There was too much decency in that. And I understand there was a lot of trouble. I grew up non-church family, all that. I Trust me. I, I've seen it. But... I'm just telling you there's the iniquity is compounding. That matches the Scripture where it says that evil men and seducers shall wax what? Worse and worse. Deceiving and being what? Deceived, which goes right back to what I'm teaching you here with this. Very consistent throughout the Bible. Thank God, personally, regardless of what anybody else decides to do, you make a decision, I make a decision... Every time we're confronted with our own flesh getting out of control, every time we are confronted with the reality that we have disobeyed our God, we, we have the strong reality there. There is a way. Thank God there is a way to get things right and start anew in the presence of our God. Uh, I'm so grateful for that. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Thank God we have a way to get back on track. Thank God we have a way to have security and strength and victory. I'm going to tell you, however many days the Lord gives us on this earth, there's never a time when we're outside of His loving control. And boy, we, He wants us to come to Him. I was just teaching our young people in our chapel service with our school is teaching uh, about the fall of man and how that uh, when God called out for Adam there in the garden, they knew this. Our young people knew this. They knew that God knew where he was. Do you think that God lost Adam among the bushes? He didn't lose him. You know, where are you? Oh, I lost one. No, he didn't lose him. He only had one to lose. He didn't lose him. He had two by that time, didn't he? And uh, he said, uh, he said to, uh, I asked the young people, and, and I said, just somebody tell me, why do you think that... Uh, why do, why do you think that God said Adam? Where for art thou? One of our young fellows said he wanted him to come out. 
Yeah, he did. He wanted to come out. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to come out to him to declare our iniquity and to be sorry for our sin. God wants us to do that. Are you willing to do that? If you're not willing to do that, you're not serious about getting right and staying right. I work with people sometimes on finances and they jabber jaw around with me and ah, I can't, wah, 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 and, and really don't want to answer after a while. I just say, you're not serious. Man, you get serious, come back. Let's quit wasting time. You say, why do you do it that way? I don't have enough time to waste time. You can do something, you're going to not do something. I don't mind somebody not knowing something, but when you're just whining around in a circle not going to ever change anything, then you're not serious. I'll love you, but get serious. I wonder how often the Holy Spirit's just said that to us. He said to me. I don't know if he ever talks to you that way. I know he's wonderful and he's a comforter, but for a comforter, he sure can poke hard. Anybody ever notice that? That comforter can flat convince and convict you, can't he? Thank God for that. There's a comfort in that too. Like God hasn't given up on us. I reckon he only keeps working on those he plans on using, huh? That's good news. So we need to declare iniquity. Sorrow for sin. Um, let, let me say this about declaring our iniquity. I, I made this, this thought, and as I was thinking through this, every revival and every return to the Lord recorded in sacred or secular history, in other words, that we have recorded in the Bible, or that we, had, uh, that we have history in our history books and, and such of God's workings in different lands, every revival begins here. What is this? Where's here? That... Someone or people or a people begin to take responsibility for their behavior. Declare to God their need and their condition. And come before God with a repentant heart. Every time, that's where it starts. They begin on a personal level. It's amazing. You probably know where the greatest revival recorded in all of history was. In a town called Nineveh. You can take first great awakening, second great awakening. You can take, uh, you can take all the uh, revivals that have happened in these lands and others. The Welsh revivals and all the different great things, the Fulton Street prayer meetings and so many things that we know of in history. But none of them compare with Nineveh. A large, substantial city where every person got right. That's almost incomprehensible, isn't it? But from the king to the lowest in the, in the city, they put on sackcloth and repentance. Why? Because they wanted God to work. When you, anytime you want to be serious, God's already serious. And you can make progress, if you will, if you come to Him. Then declare our iniquity, have sorrow for sin. Let sin be not just sin in general, but your sin. Let it be a grief to you. It should bother you. Um, it is a serious mistake to try to get rid of guilt until whatever you're guilty of is dealt with. Guilt is a very good and healthy thing if you've done something for which to be guilty. And real forgiveness is a very wonderful and healthy thing because it allows you to deal with that. But sin, my sin should make me sad. Sometimes it makes you sad to see people and their potential not live up to their potential and throw away opportunities in their life or to see them burden themselves with things that just aren't necessary. 
I mean, they're just not necessary. That's, that's burdensome. But my sin ought to be what causes me the most grief, that I would sin against my loving God. That I would be different than Christ is. That's, why would I be? He's been mighty good to me. And uh, man, I've had some great opportunities for learning and, and uh, we just ought to follow the Lord. And so our sin, and, uh, it's a sorrow for sin. Uh, let it grieve whether it be a sin of commission, which is that act or thought that engaged in what is a violation of God's Word. I used the illustration earlier of lying. That would be a sin of commission, something we did. Let that grieve you that you did wrong. Let that grieve you that you said something. The wrong, that was wrong, that you did something that was wrong, that you took something you shouldn't have. Whatever it may be, God will show you what it is. Or if it's a sin of omission. That good need for command, the thing you have known but neglected to do. I can still see the face of a young man that sat along the uh, bike trail up uh, the one that starts up at Pickering and Ponds area and goes up over 33. Back he was between 33 and Heron Pond up there. I can still see his face. It's been a lot of years ago. Passed a lot of people. But I passed him. I was going one way. And I passed and he caught my attention. Not because there was anything outstanding or anything, you know, really special that would have. He was sitting alongside the trail. But I felt so distinctly a nudge, you know. Talk to this guy. And I kept going. And I turned around, came back, came past him again. And I rode probably two or three miles past him. And that, that bothered me so much because it hit me again that second time. I went back. By the time he was gone, I've never seen him again. I've looked for him. He said, what bothers you so much about that? It was distinct. I'm not telling you every person I pass on trail. It's not that way with everybody. It was so distinct. But I was, I was trying to set a certain time. I had a certain goal. I had something I was trying to do. I'd been working up to... And how stupid and insignificant that was. And I should, have, I should have listened to that. And I know that. Now, that's not something for you. That's not a general Bible command that if we disobeyed it, all of us would know we were doing wrong. It wasn't, you know, I went here and lied to somebody. And if any of us told a lie, we know that's against God's commandment. This, I'm telling you, is just, this is the kind of thing that we watch for in our particular life when we have these opportunities. You don't want to let the opportunities go by. And... Uh, I think about that. I, I remember in Bible college, a certain man I knew in Bible college, and he came to me one day. I, I still remember distinctly. He came to me and he mentioned another Bible college student who hadn't been married very long. He said, I have the craziest thing. He says, man, I, I, I don't know why. He says, it just come to my mind that I had to go buy a bag of groceries or something for me. I said, man, I said, thank you, Auntie. I'll go do it. And uh, didn't think much more about it. A couple, three days later, saw him and... Uh, uh, somehow or other in conversation came around to the other person. He said, you know, he said, I never did go by. He says, I got busy and all that. And uh, the, uh, <laughs> uh, the other fellow who had no idea that conversation happened, I never let either one know about that I saw both sides of it by virtue of what happened. But the other fellow who had person B there, that the person A had said that they, they thought maybe they ought to go get something for him. They, some months later, were talking to me and they said, you know, we went through some real rough times at the beginning. I was working, my wife was trying to work and stuff. said, I remember this particular time and named it. It was that time. It said, for two days, all we had, we shared a bag, a bag of Lay's potato chips. That's all we had. And it was right at that time. I never went back to Brother Ray and said, let me tell you, you about to starve somebody. <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> you say, why wouldn't you do that? Well, first of all, it's rude and, and dumb. Who'd do that? And second of all, I don't, I'm not going to start that kind of judgment. I don't want to come back my way. Amen. Um, but there I got to see both sides of it, Brother Brian, where this was, here was a real need that the Lord would use them to meet. But let's be careful about that. Uh, sometimes uh, parents, sometimes it seems like a child... And I just beg him for your attention, keep me from doing stuff. I know you get busy and such, but you can kind of sense there's a need. You get prodded by it. There's, there's a look in the eye. There's something like that. You won't regret slowing down, paying attention. You won't regret if you take time. And so uh, these, these things are important things. What is it? Uh, charity does not rejoice in iniquity. Charity has no affection for it. The affection of charity is not for iniquity. Why? Because iniquity does harm. It destroys. It damages. And God doesn't want that. How simple can it be for us? God loves His children and doesn't want them hurt. It's that simple. The commands in the Bible, the things that people call restrictions are not restrictions. They're freedoms from bondages. And you know what? God doesn't want His creation hurt. So those, even those who are uh, not yet believed on Him, He still has that love that He has for us. Thank God for it. So let it grieve us. Iniquity always has a chilling effect on love. In fact, the more you mess with iniquity, the more limited you will be in your capacity to love on all levels. Let me give you a passage with that. Look at Matthew 24. Iniquity has a chilling effect on love. We're talking tonight about charity's affection. Charity does not have an affection for iniquity. That corruptive source and influence that comes around in sin and as a result of sin. Matthew chapter 24. Just one verse in there. In warnings about false prophets, deceivers and such. By the way, if you realize the context, you realize that our love not being as it ought to be will make us more susceptible to false teaching, false doctrine, false leaders. Look in uh, uh, Matthew 24, verse 12. And it says, And because iniquity shall abound. We've talked a little bit about that. The what? Love of who? Many shall wax. In other words, become more cold. Iniquity has a chilling effect on love. It wrecks the capacity. It messes it up on all levels. Not only our love towards God, which would be obvious, but our love towards one another. All of it's affected. Relationships are. And, uh, and, and it's, a, it's a very bad thing. I'm not turning you to these, but in Acts 1.18, it teaches us that iniquity often promises and sometimes delivers material and temporary pleasure and or gain. In other words, there sometimes is a pleasure in iniquity. And sometimes there's a gain through iniquity. Some people advance materially. And they seem to prosper and go forward in this world. They do. And sometimes that's the case with iniquity. But that is more than offset by the fact if you keep reading down through Acts, you get to Acts 8.23 and you find out that iniquity always leads to bondage. 
So the pleasure that's based on iniquity and the so-called profitability that's based on iniquity is nothing more than a trap. And every so-called success or advancement that's based on iniquity is another link in the chain that binds you. You know this. People know this in general. Sometimes people say one of the worst things somebody can do is get away with that first crime. That first whatever it is. I wonder sometimes when I was a young boy and I tried to smoke a horseweed. I never liked smoking. I never thought it was, I just, it stinks and I never thought I looked at it. And I grew up in a house and my, my mom for many years smoked. My stepdad did. I didn't smoke. I just smelled like I'd been in a chimney. <laughs> but we got one of those hollow horse weeds. He said, why? Did you all hear you get buzz off that? No, we were just being weird kids growing up in the country. Lit the end of that thing. Why? I don't know. I didn't even like smoking. But I'm going... You've heard people smoking weed? I'm smoking horse weed. I'm not too bright all the way around. You know, I'm like, at least... I sucked in on that thing. I found out why people don't smoke that kind of weed. <laughs> and telling you, knowing what kind of damage could have been done, I feel very fortunate. I sucked that ember back in. Let me just clue you in. Sucking, burning things into your lungs is a very bad medical practice. I think it made it all the way to my lung, which is evidenced by both of them still working. But I guarantee you, I've got a tattoo on my epiglottis. It hit me. Sucked that thing in. <laughs> I begin to make all sorts of very unnatural noises. Can I report to you from that happy day till this, I've never had the urge to smoke anything. Sometimes when people experiment with different things, sometimes they would say somebody experiment with a drug and a very bad trip would sometimes keep them from messing with it again or a bad thing with that. Someone goes to steal and they get caught for stealing first time and it keeps them from going. And sometimes when people seem to succeed in their sin, it emboldens them to keep going with it. Why is that? That's because of this thing of iniquity and what it does. Charity doesn't delight in it. I've been teaching you these, this, these several weeks on charity. As we've looked at these things about charity and God's love working in us towards others, realize it has a purifying and it has a, it has a cleansing effect. And it, why? Because it doesn't delight in iniquity. So in other words, if someone says they love you, they're your friend, or they want to be close to you, and part of their love is to try to get you towards iniquity, then you're not dealing with love. You're dealing with love. You better learn to recognize the difference. Lust is a consumer thing. The goal of lust is to satisfy the one that has the desire. The purpose of charity is what is best for the one who's the object of love. And there are worlds apart in those two things. Let's continue on. The Bible dealt with this and dealt first with the fact in verse, uh, I'm back in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, I hope you've kept that place, where it said in verse 6, it rejoiceth not in iniquity, and we've dealt with that now, but rejoiceth in the truth. And now I want to turn our minds from that for which charity has no affection and let them rest on what causes charity to rejoice. The object 
of charity's fondest affection, and that's truth. Truth is a wonderful thing. I was, I was meditating the other day on, on how the Lord is the only fit judge. He's the only one fit to be the final judge. Um, I've had occasion for different reasons to be involved in court system here to, in, in town and be before judge, magistrate, that type of thing, involved in different things. I've prayed for people in those positions. Not only at the time that I was interacting with them, but would for a good while afterwards and I'd write their name down. In fact, there's a couple of them I keep and I'll see their name. Um, but you say, why would you pray for them? Because I've thought about it as I've watched them. They have to look at the evidence. They have to try to sense and reason out what, what matches and what doesn't. And they have to reach some sort of conclusion. And even if it's a jury trial or something where others decide guilt or not, then they ultimately will finally set the sentence and all this. It's a tough job. Especially for those who take it seriously. And I've been around some of those who take it seriously. It matters to them. I don't know that we would be of the same political persuasions or anything like that if we talked for a long time, but they took what they're doing seriously and I appreciate that. But I got to think about how God's the only one who's really fit to judge because God's the only one who knows all the truth. He knows all of it. In fact, He knows what we kind of like to say about each other sometimes. You know, I know you better than you do. We'll say that kind of thing. God actually does. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And so, charity rejoices in truth. And there's some basic reasons for it. I absolutely love it. Charity has a desire to know truth and to do truth. Not just know it and recognize it, but to live it. Wouldn't that be a great thing? I want you to consider a couple verses with me. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Talking about charity, loving truth, and loving doing of truth. 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn over there with me, please. And watch how this all fits together. Look in verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in doing what with the truth? Obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Something that's feigned is something that's faked or put on, hypocritical if you will. So unfeigned love would be pure love. It would be real love. That would be the thing like we're learning about with charity here. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with what kind of a heart? Pure heart. And what kind of a spirit? Fervently. In other words, it's active. It's, it's not a passive type thing, but you decide to love one another. You're looking out for each other's good. Looking for ways to help, to advance, to strengthen, to encourage, to lift the hands. 
I have somewhere in my files a note that a fellow wrote me when I was, uh, I think it was my graduate year in college. And not a particularly low time or anything like that, but just, you know, going through and carrying a heavy schedule and different stuff like that. And this fellow just slipped me a note. He was a man, he was a married man in college, had children, he's older than I was. And uh, I, I could tell you, I'm not going to tell you, but I could tell you what that, what that uh, note said, word for word. It's a complimentary note, that'd be a good thing. Let me tell you how much this guy thought of me. Um, that, you know, I, but just say he handed me a complimentary, not a flattery, but a complimentary and encouraging note. He was a college student. He had a family he was caring for. He was working, busy, but he took time to sit down and it wasn't lengthy, but a few well-chosen words Passed it to a Christian brother. I still have it. Still have it in here too. Why? Because it would it would strengthen and encourage. Um, we were talking about different marks tonight. Uh, I'm trying to remember Mark. Uh, what's the last name? Was no, no, Eric. Eric Ness. You remember? Do you remember Brother Eric? Um, Eric Ness. Uh, see, he was a fellow we were in Bible college with. He was this way in Bible college, and then. All the years I saw him afterwards, we'd see it at a, a pastor's school or something like that. And he would come up, and here's what he'd say. He'd say, there's Brother Phil Manning, man of God. He says, but you're still serving the Lord. Brother Eric, when he saw you, no matter who you were, big, tall guy, he would just come up, and he would, by the time you talked to him for two minutes, Brother Keith, you felt like you could go charge hell with a squirt gun. You just, you know, you're ready to go, man. Ready to get at it. Now, not everybody has that type of personality, but I believe we could have the kind of spirit where we love one another fervently. I believe he had that down there. That's what that means. And his nature was that outgoing type thing that wouldn't be natural for many people, but we can love one another. Sometimes it's been, it's been a particular smile. Sometimes it's, it's someone's that little bit of encouragement, that little bit of going along the way. You said, yeah, I, I could use that. We all could use that. But since we can't guarantee that's going to come our way, why don't we decide to live giving that? And uh, when we do that, we can really help some people. And so it said that you love one another fervently. Keep going to 1 John. While you're there, Peter, go to 1 John chapter 3. The affection of charity. A few of you have talked to me about, since we've been studying on this, Wanting charity to be working in your life and how you see it's working and some things God's doing in you through His Word. I'm encouraged by that. May I say that as we grow in our charity and as, as God's people, becoming more what a church should be, more like our Master, um, as we do that, we'll be developing an affection for what God has an affection for. Truth. God has an affection for truth. Jesus is called truth. He wants us to be true. And true in our actions as well as our words. And this verse in chapter 3 and verse 18 outlines it completely. Verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed, and in what? Truth. So the idea is not that our words should not be loving, but if all the love we have are words, 
then we have not yet understood and put into play charity as God wants us to because charity involves action. God's entrusted some people into your life. What if you decided to be God's vessel to do them good? That'd be a really good way to invest your life. That'd be a really good thing to do. And it would be pleasing to the Lord and beneficial to those you, you're doing that towards. Charity rejoiceth. You have anything you rejoice in? I bet we all have several things or things we like. Some Probably some things we get to do. If we get to do it, boy, we like to do that. That's something we enjoy doing. Maybe it's a hobby you have. Maybe it's something you do for relaxation. Maybe it's a, a particular thing that's involved with what you do for your, uh, your vocation, your living, a certain part of it you like doing really well. I hope it is. Maybe it's certain people you like to be with or certain things that you enjoy. And you just rejoice. You get an opportunity to do it. You're glad to get to do it. You're glad to be able to. That's what this is talking about when it says charity rejoices in truth. It says there's truth. I like it. I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad to hear somebody say something plainly and to speak unguardedly and say the truth. And more, moreover, to say the truth in love as Ephesians teaches us that we should do. And then let me say to you, as we begin to know and to do the truth, charity desires that which is best for the one that is loved. Undoubtedly, charity delights in truth's unique power to set us free. Look in John chapter 8. Why would charity rejoice in truth? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but John 8 tells us a strong one. John chapter 8. Verse 29, Jesus is speaking and He says, And He that sent Me is with Me, the Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please Him. Quite a statement, isn't it? I do always those things that please Him. As He spake these words, many believed in Him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on Him, If you continue in My Word, then are you My disciples indeed. He said, you want to be called My disciples, someone who is a follower of Me, someone who's actually following My teachings? He says, then you need to continue in what I'm teaching. You can't claim to be a disciple. You can't claim to be a true follower when you hear and ignore what I say. You follow it. It keeps going. Then said Jesus to those Jews, believed on Him. Of course, I'm reading again there. Believed on Him. If you continue in My Word, then are you My disciples indeed. And ye shall know what? The truth. And in that case where they're following the truth, where they obey it. And the truth shall make you uh, free. Why does charity rejoice in the truth? Do you realize that truth is the only thing that can make us free? You know, the old and overused poem, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when ourselves we first deceive. And what was written a lot of years ago in that is, is a true statement. Deceit, false living, all these things are bondage. 
And charity wants what is best for the object loved. And so charity can't rejoice in iniquity. Charity rejoices in truth. Are we glad about truth? Do we have an appetite for it? You remember the passage we started with in Colossians? If ye then be risen with Christ. There's the condition if you actually save people. If you then be risen with Christ, okay? Not you're saved. Here's what you do. Next step. Set your affection. You set it. You don't say, you know, wherever it goes. You set it. Set your affection above. Why? That's where God, that's what God wants you to do. Because God wants to bring you up. He wants to strengthen you. He wants your life to be more than just event to event to event and and whatever happens, happens. He wants it to be a purpose and a direction for it and loving people as you go. It's kind of amazing. I my mammal Morris passed away, my mom's mom, when I was 11 years old. We were close. I didn't get to see her a lot until shortly before she passed away. Uh, she lived in Kentucky. We were up in Ohio. Every three-day weekend we were in Kentucky, so there you are. And, uh, but she was just special, and it seemed to me. She was really neat. She's a neat mammal. But there was something different about her, and I wouldn't know what that was until years later. She was a very strong Christian lady. And uh, the more I found out about her, and then even when I preached many years later, I preached a revival in West Liberty, Kentucky, which the little town, uh, the little town of Caney, where my mom grew up and all that, way, way up in the holler. Uh, you have Caney and you have the little place of Index, which now actually actually has a few buildings in it. It used to really not have anything. It was just kind of a dot. And then uh, you have West Liberty, which is, you know, town of a few thousand and uh, famous for the Sorghum Festival and uh, famous for an F5 tornado went down through there a few years ago, which is really strange in that part of Kentucky. But the uh, West Liberty, Kentucky, and I was preaching revival in West Liberty, which is a good way up from Caney. And so you're talking about just coming out of high school, it's about 1982 or so. 81, 82, I was writing that, writing that ballpark. I guess it have been 82, 83, somewhere around there. Anyway, I, uh, I was preaching down there. Now, my mammal died when I was 11, which would have put her in 1975 she died. I never knew my uncle, Rennie, was his name. His name was Ren. Everybody called him Rennie. I never knew him. Or my uncle, my grandpa on that side. Um, I never knew him. I was born in 64, so he had died a while before that. My mammal died in 75. And I'm preaching in 82, 83 in that ballpark. in West Liberty... And I'm around town witnessing. And I would say, people would say, Who's pe- who, who are your people? You have to kind of know there. Who are your people? And I'd say, I, I'd tell them more, well, which ones? And uh, do you know Herc, which was Herschel? Did you know? They'd ask everyone. But I would say, I'm Rennie and Myrtle's grandson. Oh, you're Rennie and Myrtle's grandson. Well, I know your grandma. I know your grandpa. From the older people. Let me tell you what they did. Let me tell you about when everybody up and up around Caney had typhoid. And your your grandma went and doctor nursed all those different families. When they had another disease, they didn't know what was going on with it. We're not sure where it was. 
And she would actually, there was a place where there were these big rocks at the end of the holler. She'd, she'd change clothes down there and wouldn't bring the clothes she'd been wearing when she took care of the other families up back up to the house. She said she'd go to the house and make sure the different families, they were clothed, washed, they had food, and they were sick. And she never got it. None of the, none of the family got it. None of the Morses did. Let me tell you about your Grandpa Rennie. Let me tell you about what he would do and how he'd invite everybody over. Myrtle didn't know he was going to do it and he'd come home with 20-some people behind him after church. And how the kids would come to hear him tell Bible stories up on the porch and all that stuff. These folks lived way back up in the holler. They never had a title. They They didn't have a bunch of possessions. Do you know what they had, I believe, from what I can put together from all I've seen? They had something called charity. I know all their kids grew up to reverence them. Not all their kids chose the right way or followed the way of the Lord. But boy, they had a respect and reverence for They called mommy and poppy. That's what they called them. Why? Because I'm going to tell you what. And you listen well. Way beyond our reasoning, way beyond our theological knowledge, charity will do the work through us that God wants to use us for more purely and more completely than anything else we can do as God's people. Self's got to get out of the way. and We've got to learn to love and care for one another in the way that God wants us to care. That's what I was supposed to bring for us tonight. Let's pray together, all right? Father, thank You for Your words. Thank You for declaring clearly what You rejoice in and what You don't. I want, to, I want to have that just as my reflex to rejoice in what you rejoice in. So much good that you have. So much beauty that you have. Thank you for every bit of it. Help us, Lord, to be the kind and loving people we ought to be to one another because of you. Bless us with your grace that we may be able to show your mercy. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together tonight. Did you come and pray? Did you come? I'm telling you, Jesus is worthy of your trust. You ought to, you ought to put your put your faith in Him. Watch you come. As these are praying and others come, this is well a place on invitation.